Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 11, 16 through 24. Opposition leads to rejection. Now, remember where Jesus has been. He's been teaching his disciples, training his disciples to go out two by two. And they have sent them out two by two. And then he is doing his ministry in Galilee, and he runs into John the Baptist's disciples. And John wonders why he's in prison. And last week we talked about doubt and how that entered into John's mind. Doubt. He was in prison. Why am I here? If you're the Messiah. And Jesus sends word back that the blind see, the lame walk, devils are cast out. Everything that Messiah has predicted to be done in the Old Testament, he has fulfilled. And John, I imagine, felt great relief. Now there's going to be a transition in Jesus' ministry. He has offered the kingdom to the Jewish people. And now he's facing more and more opposition, and eventually it will be rejection from the Jewish people. Chapter 12 is where they have their final rejection of Messiah. He's leading up to that as we speak this week. So if you would, stand for reading of God's word. We honor God by standing when we read his word. Matthew eleven sixteen through 24. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and, companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a winebiber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you have been done in Sodom that would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. This is the word of God. Father, we give you thanks for this time to study the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. Holy Spirit, you're the one that illuminates. You're the one that teaches. You're the one that directs our steps and our paths. May we learn from you today things that you want us to hear. Open our spiritual ears, our eyes, our, give us soft hearts. Help us to receive today the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Thank you. As you know, the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. And every week we say the king is coming. There's a kingdom coming where Jesus will reign and everything will be put in order. And folks, I don't know about you, but I am looking forward to that day. What a day that will be. My Jesus, I shall see. Yes, now he sent his guys out two by two. And remember, we talked about doubt last week and how John the Baptist had doubt and how doubt can creep into any life, the right stressor at the wrong moment, and anybody can fall into doubt. Doubt's cousin is discouragement and disappointments. They kind of go together as you're going through life. And doubt can come into your life. It can squeeze in the smallest crack. I mean, you can feel like your armor's on, you can feel like you're all solid and life is wonderful. And then suddenly, Nick sent me this picture. He gets credit. You get this that comes up. I'm so disciplined in my spiritual walk, no sin can get me. And then all of a sudden, wham, and actually that was pride. <laughs> we tweak this because pride is actually sin. I don't think that doubt is a sin, but I think anybody can doubt and not be in sin. You're just looking for the truth. But doubt can come in at any time and pierce anybody at any time. And that, that was a nice picture, Nick. You can continue to send those to me. I'm open to it. Al sends them too. So. But anyway, doubt. Uh, remember, John is in Herod's prison. Herod Antipas, who's in charge of Galilee, is in prison. And he's wondering why he's not been set free. And you know, with a, with a feeling of abandonment that, that John had, a feeling of doubt, discouragement, and disappointment can creep in. But it's not just that. The unfairness of life can cause doubt. Accidents, illness, catastrophes, the horrendous things that happen in life can cause doubt. One of the biggest things that can cause doubt is the world system that we're living in that shoots doubt arrows at you. Remember the last week those doubt arrows were coming at you constantly. The educational system can do that to you. Our world is a doubt factory. 
We're inundated with indoctrination to have us doubt our beliefs in our Lord. My job, your job, when doubt comes in, is not let it marinate in your soul, not let it soak into your soul, not let it tarnish you. It is so easy to have doubt come in, and with doubt over a long period of time, if you allow it to marinate, a root of bitterness can grow. And I had this picture of this gnarly-looking tree with all these roots of bitterness here. Hebrews 12, 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That root of bitterness spring up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now look at these roots of bitterness can come up for a plethora of reasons. And again, anytime you're faced with major disappointments or discouragement, doubt can come in. Pain persistent, unrelenting pain can cause a root of bitterness to come in and doubt to come in. Unresolved anger, doubt can come in. So it can come in, a root of bitterness can spread. And we are to deal with that. But there's hope when you enter Doubtville. That's a city, the Doubtville, okay? <laughs> the city you do not want to live in. So we refocus on the truth. And remember, we talked about this. We refocus on the truth. What is that truth? God is real. The heavens declare the glory of God. He is real. The creation demonstrates it. God is with me. And remember, God has said he will never leave you nor forsake you. And you remember in the Greek, that is five times, he will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. What emphasis is that? Our God is going to go through the fire, go through the floods with us. We can take, take absolute assurance in that. God has not promised us a problem-free life here. So many people think, I'm going to get saved and my life is going to be perfect. Oh, no. You're going to still be in the mess until you get out of here in the glorified state. James says it perfectly in James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of troubles or trials and that sort of thing. That word various is pokleos, like polka dots, different shapes and sizes. They're coming at you constantly, different trials, different different degrees of difficulty. Jesus deals with John's doubt the same way that we deal with doubt, and that is to know the truth. He tells John, the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the demons are cast out. John, I am the Messiah. Benjamin Franklin had a wonderful little saying here, and it'll come up on the screen. When in doubt, don't. Now that's pretty simple, isn't it? When in doubt, don't. And what I say is when doubt comes at you, then you get trust going in your spirit. I trust in the Lord. Remember Richard Farmer, I will trust in the Lord until I die. That's right. This week, opposition against Jesus is building. And that opposition will lead to ultimate rejection by the nation of Israel. In chapters, in verse 16 and 19, opposers are critical of Jesus. These are fault finders. Folks, in your life, you're going to find all kinds of fault finders, especially if you're really living out the Christian life. All kinds of fault finders. So, verse 16, but to what shall I liken this generation? Now, he's speaking to, to a, a group of people. It is like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling their companions and saying, let's play a game. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a winebiber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, fault finders, fault finders, fault finders. But wisdom is justified by her children. Fault finders cannot wait to point out your fault. Now, what did Jesus teach us about judging other people when we have the big old plank in our eye? Remember, judge not lest you be judged. We have these big plank in our eye. Get the plank out of your own eye. Then you can make a cogent judgment of somebody else. But get the plank out of your own eye first. The generation are like children playing games. Fault finders, folks, are never satisfied, always complain and fault finders, when you're around complaining people, drain you. You ever experienced that? They just drain you. Like children playing, this generation found fault with John, the forerunner of Jesus. He's, he's, too, he's too critical. 
He's too critical that John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And then they're critical of Jesus. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. He's different than John, presented differently, and say, look, he's a glutton, he's a wine-biber. You know what that means? He's a drunk. They're accusing Jesus of being a drunk. These are the Pharisees, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Fault finders say, hey, Jesus parties too much. He's hanging around with the wrong group of people. Look at this, Jesus. People will always, always try to find fault with your life. Fault finders condemn Jesus for the most amazing thing here is for drinking wine. Now, I want to talk to you and just take a little segue here that could be dangerous for some of you. It could be enlightening for some of you. What about alcohol and the Christian? Let's talk about this for just a second. Alcohol and the Christian. A biblical, what I'm going to title it, a biblical perspective. Now, I want you to consider something. Jesus, I believe, made real wine at the Feast of Canaan, the wedding feast in John 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul said to Timothy to drink some wine for his stomach's sake and frequent infirmities. And in Proverbs 31, 6, listen to this one, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Now, I want to suggest to you that wine is wine, not grape juice. There's a big push to try to make wine grape juice. But you're not giving grape juice to someone who's perishing, who's bitter of heart. It's not going to really help that person. Robert Dean on this subject has this to say. Now, Robert Dean is a terrific teacher. A lot of people still think the Bible condemns alcoholic beverages. It does not. It condemns the abuse of alcoholic beverages, but it doesn't condemn drinking them. Jesus came, he said he enjoyed food, enjoyed wine, he enjoyed the companionship of people, loved to be with people. He was socially active, even with those that were unacceptable to the Pharisees, and he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Now, I want you to consider something when you consider this situation with alcohol. First, consider this, the weaker brother. You will influence other people by your decision. You may have freedom in this matter, but do not allow your freedom to hinder somebody else. You must be cognizant of that. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, but you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause other with a, others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Your moderation could give license to someone else's excess. Please think about that. Please think about this, particularly in the culture we live in today where it's a free-for-all to do whatever you want. Secondly, I want you to consider the, the regulations or the responsibility that elders in the church have regarding alcohol. That's found in 1 Timothy 3.3. 3. They are not to be given to wine. Well, what does that mean? Literally means does not stay near the wine isn't in the wine all the time. It does not mean prohibition. It does not mean prohibition. An elder must not have a reputation as a drinker. And, and this is really important. An elder's judgment must never be clouded. Never be clouded. What does alcohol do? It does tend to cloud your judgment. It does. Be very careful. Now consider this. Clouded minds are fodder for the demonic, an enticement for the flesh. That's what can happen if you, if, with alcohol, okay? Now, also consider this kings. You're kings. We are priests and kings in the kingdom of God, right? We understand that. We've learned this in the past. Now, watch what, watch what is written in Proverbs 31.4, considering kings, which you are. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Now again, we are kings and priests. I don't know how this speaks to you. I know how it speaks to me. I have to be very careful with this. Now, Consider the next point. It's personal between God and you. 
God and you. And I just want to give you a little of my story, a little of my story. In my life, alcohol has caused a lot of problems. I mean, you talk about messed up families. You talk about messed up lives. You talk about sin and and fighting and kicking and gouging and scratching and that whole thing, personal mess, public mess. And I have personally chosen to stay away from it. It has caused too much pain in my life. The other thing is, is I'm an elder. And I believe that my judgment must never, ever be clouded. I never want to be in a position where someone calls me and I have clouded thinking. And thirdly, I'm a king. I'm a king. And I do not want my judgment to be clouded. Now, consider the next point. And I just want to present this to you. Who needs wine when you have the Holy Spirit? Good question. Ephesians 5.18 gives the warning against excess. Do not be drunk with wine, which, which leads to dissipation. Dissipation is the spending freely on your own lust. It's a flesh-feeding frenzy. That's what di- dissipation is. Do not be, be drunk on wine, which leads to dissipation, but contrasted, be filled Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, you know this word. The word is palero in the Greek. It means cramful, overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Folks, if you're living like that, you don't need wine. That's my supposition, but it's up to you. You have freedom. You have freedom. So, let me suggest this to you, or ask, this, ask you this question. What part of your being is alcohol appealing to? Is it facilitating your spiritual growth? Or is it facilitating your flesh? Just a question for you to ponder, okay? Now, those with rigid view who say, never, 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 no, 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 never, never, have to deal with what the Bible teaches. And those with a loose view, not considering anybody else, I'm going to do whatever I want, you have to consider what the Bible teaches. So in conclusion on this subject, the Bible, I believe, does not prohibit modern alcohol consumption. It condemns in no uncertain terms drunkenness. The problem that I see is a drunk usually doesn't know when they're drunk. Those who are tipsy will never tell you, I'm okay. I can drive. I'm cool. That sort of thing. Secondly, the Bible warns about causing someone to stumble. Very careful with that. And then be very careful in your freedom with the freedom that you have. And remember, you are a king after all. Don't let your mind be clouded. So, now on this subject of alcohol, on this subject of fault finders, on this subject of people always looking at your life, if you're a Christian and you're really standing out there, it's going to be very important that you walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, that no one can make an accusation at you and say you're just like them as far as living like the world. So be very careful with this fault finders. The opposers of Christianity cannot wait to pounce on your life. Eyes are on you. They're watching you. Be very careful as, as you live. All eyes are on you. So what must we do? Listen to Paul. Colossians 1.10, he says this just perfectly because the Spirit of God led him to say it perfectly. That you may walk, remember walk is your life, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. Being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. You know what that means? I'm growing up. I'm becoming more like my dad. I'm becoming more like my heavenly father. I'm becoming more like Jesus, conformed to the likeness of Christ. I'm changing. And folks, hear this loud and clear. We are here to please God, not this world's fault finders. You will never appease the fault finders. We will never appease them. We are not here for them. We are here for our Lord. That simple. Verse 20 to 24 is going to, Jesus is going to go from an invitation for them to come to the kingdom his wrath. He's warning them about the wrath of God. There's going to be a ministry change here. So 20 to 24. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. 
Those are miracles demonstrating that he is the Messiah. And he went to Jewish cities that rejected him. You'll see the first couple here. Woe to you, excuse me, they might have been done because they did not repent. That's a key, key part. Then he says, woe to you, Jewish city Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Now, why did not Jesus go to Tyre and Sidon? If we were in a study class, we would have a discussion on this, and you probably wouldn't have the answer, and I would try to tell you at least my answer. They're Gentile cities. Yes, he, Jesus' mission was to the Jew first. To the Jew first. He's offering the kingdom to the Jewish people. Not the Gentile people. That'll come later. Verse 23, and this is his home base. And you, Capernaum, Jesus' home base in Galilee, who are exalted to heaven, prideful, will be brought down to Hades, hell. For if mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. And I say to you that it shall be more tolerable, listen to this, for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you who had all kinds of light and you rejected the light. That is what he's saying here. The kingdom rejected will result in the God's wrath. It will result in judgment. Now, Jesus has, again, he's offered the kingdom of God to the Jewish people, to the leadership, and both the leadership and the people are rejecting him, opposing him, not wanting him. Did you ever wonder why they wouldn't want Jesus? This is what I think happened. In the Old Testament, it describes two comings of Messiah. It, it describes Messiah as the servant, the suffering servant. Remember in Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice, O greatly daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, your king is coming to you. He is just, having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, a servant's animal, the foal of a donkey. Now, this, of course, is, is referring to Palm Sunday, we reflect back on this, on this verse, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's crowned as king, he accepts his kingship there, but he's on a donkey, he's a servant, he's not the king yet, and remember what the people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now Jesus, save now Jesus, and Jesus then has a period of time when he reflects on what they're saying. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then he, Jesus says these words. He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these stones keep silent, the stones should immediately cry out. The Pharisees are saying, shut them up, Jesus. You're not the king. You're not the king. You're just, you're coming as a servant. That's not how, see, they wanted the king to come. They wanted the reigning one to come. The one that would save them from, the, from Roman tyranny. The one that would put them in high standing. And then he says this. As he drew near, he saw the city. And when you go to Israel and you're taking those steps down, the Gethsemane steps, and you're looking across at Jerusalem, and you see, you can just see Jesus weeping over the city, saying this. If you had known, even you, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. There is a time. When God says, no mas, no more. There is a time. For days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you on on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another. Now, hear what happened. In 70 AD, at least one million Jewish, Jewish unbelievers died in Jerusalem. This came true. This came to fruition. Why? Jesus says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not recognize me as the Messiah. He held them responsible. He holds us responsible today for the life that we have been given. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 talks about the crucified servant Messiah, the suffering Messiah who will be crushed on the cross for the sins of the world. 
In Psalm 22, it describes the crucifixion of the suffering Messiah. The Jewish nation chose to focus on the prophecy about Messiah's reign, his kingship, and ignored his servanthood. Folks, the Jewish folks, the whole world, needed a savior before they could have a king. He had to be the savior first, the suffering servant. They missed the suffering Messiah. Now, their judgment came on them because they refused to repent. Verse 20, he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works, the evidence was there, had been done because they did not repent. Now, we have gone through this word repent multitude of times. It is metanoia, and it means change of mind, changing the way that you think about Jesus. They didn't change the way that they think about Jesus. They wanted Jesus made in their image, not who he really was. Repent, change of mind, which results in a change of life, a turn in your life. Ezekiel expresses the heart of God, and we've used this verse many times. You'll be familiar with it. Ezekiel 18.23 says this, Do I have any pleasure, this is God, at all that the wicked should perish or should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should live and turn from his ways and, turn from his ways and live? Does God have any pleasure that the wicked should perish? but not that they turn and live. God wants people to turn and live. That's the heart of God being poured out to humanity as humanity stiff arms God. Jesus' Galilean ministry is completed. The result of that ministry is critical rejection of Messiah. Now listen, this ministry took place for two years where he walked through the cities of Galilee, demonstrated that he was the Messiah, and ultimately said, no, we don't want you, Jesus. We want the Jesus. We want the Messiah that we're making up in our mind. Now, if they rejected Jesus, who else do you think they're going to reject? Anybody that follows him. So be ready for rejection, disappointment, that sort of thing. And what we do is we do not become discouraged because the culture is growing darker Okay, America is growing darker. There's pockets of places in the world where the Spirit of God is working in the hearts of minds and people. There is a harvest of souls in Iran and Iraq. There's a harvest of souls in China and Russia and those places. But America has kicked God out, and now America is becoming darker, and now America is suffering the abandonment of the living God. That is what we are experiencing. Now, we are to join God where God is at work. God is still at work. In America, he's still at work in your neighborhood. He's still at work in your families. And we are to join God where you see him at work. So whenever you see the Holy Spirit open an opportunity to you to, you, to share the gospel, that's what you do. And if there's any reception at all, I mean, you know what you do with your foot. You stick your foot in the door, pry that baby open, and tell them the gospel truth, that Jesus loves them. Why do people refuse to turn and live? That's a great question. Why do people refuse to turn and live? John says it perfectly. You know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It just rolls off, doesn't it? You just kind of like pass the butter. You've heard it so many times. But you haven't heard verse 17 very many times. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Jesus came to save, seek and to save the lost, not to condemn the world. They will condemn themselves by rejecting the Messiah. And then Jesus goes on to say in John 3.18, whoever believes, whoever, whoever, whoever believes is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believes is not condemned. He who believes is not condemned. That is the emphasis. And then in verse 19, this is the condemnation. This is the answer to the question. That light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Why don't people turn and live? They love their sin. They love their sin. Now, 
How many times have you talked to people and they rationalize away the real Jesus? They'll make up a Jesus, like I say, in their own mind. The Jesus that will give me anything that I want, anytime that I want, that he's there just for me. I'm not there for him. He's there just for me. They rationalize away hell. They, they rationalize that everyone goes to heaven. How many, how many times have you seen an obituary? Count them on zero hands. That, that brethren, that, that loved one went to hell. You have never seen an obituary one time where that loved one went to hell. But how many times have you seen they're in heaven? And usually it's some screwy thing like they're floating with the angels. They're a flower in God's flower patch. There's some weird, strange thing. Jesus was very, very specific on who makes it into the kingdom. And in Matthew 7, 13, he was very pointed. He said to the people listening to him, enter by the narrow gate. Now, there's going to be a picture. Oh, here it is. Thank you, Maritza. Enter by the narrow gate. Narrow gate. Narrow gate. Now, I've said this when we were in Matthew chapter 7. It isn't a wide gate over here and a narrow gate here, and you're just making a choice. No. The wide gate is the opposite direction. Remember, when you repented, you turned to the light. That is what's happening here. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many go in by it. And narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And you saw this picture in one of our last teachings a while back. But again, the next, next slide. Look, at this is the world. This is the world. They're all going one way. They're all calling to you. No one could take that Jesus road. Don't go down here. Come follow us. We're on the right road. Now, you know how difficult it is to resist the pressure to fit in with a group. Folks, resist the pressure. Have the courage to say, I am a Christ follower. I wish they would have made this, this dude right here just giant. I am a Christ follower. I follow the king. I am not going the way of the world. Many, many, many believed they're in the family of God, folks, but they are not. They are tares amongst the wheat. There are false believers galore in the church. Make sure that you're a real believer. Now, loud and clear, the consequence of rejecting Jesus was woe. Woe. And it's the first woe that is used. Verse 22 and 23, woe, Chorazin. Woe, Bethsaida. Again, it's the first time that word is being used in Scripture. That woe means dreadful, wrath, judgment. Now, the principle is clear. With light, with information, comes responsibility. Comes responsibility. Jesus held these people responsible for knowing that he was the Messiah. Now, why was Jesus rejected in Capernaum? And I suggest to you it was pride. And I think they said something like this. It doesn't say exactly this wording. He's the carpenter's son. He's only the carpenter's son. Now, it did say in Luke 4.22, when he went to minister in, in, uh, in Nazareth, and he went to the synagogue, and a scroll was handed to him, he read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, from Isaiah 61. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind. This is all Messiah stuff. And set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He closes the scroll and he sits down and this is the response. All who bore witness to him marveled at his gracious words. And then someone in the crowd pipes up. Is not this Joseph's son? Isn't he just the carpenter's son? He's not all that special. That's the, the intimation here. And you know what happens to that group of people that thought he was so gracious? In minutes, they want to throw him off a hill and kill him. But they could not because it was not yet his time. No one will take Jesus' life. He will sacrifice his life. No one will steal it. 
Then he talks about Capernaum. Capernaum will be brought down. That's Jesus' home base in Galilee. They're rejected for pride. Pride. The feeling of how great I am. That's pride. You know what God says to you? How great you aren't. And it doesn't take long in a human's life where your pride is broken. I want to give you an example. And I should have had Muhammad Ali up here. I am the greatest. I like Muhammad Ali. I watched him. I pulled for him. I liked the way he boxed and that sort of thing. I didn't like his attitude. Well, actually, in those days, I kind of liked his attitude. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, but as I became a Christian and more mature, I said, this is wrong. I mean, he's extolling himself. And finally, he breaks down. And then, of course, he ends up with Parkinson's and that sort of thing. And he becomes humbled. He becomes humbled. How great I aren't. God is great. We are not. Any greatness that we have is imputed by God through Christ to us. It is not us. Not us. And what is their destiny? The pride, self-exaltation, Hades. Then you know what that is? It's the region of, of, of departed spirits. The unsaved now are in torment. The holding tank, Hades, the grave, awaiting the great white throne judgment for their final disposition in the lake of fire. You who are saved at the resurrection of Jesus, paradise was emptied, caught up to heaven. Now you, because you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's what we can count on. Now, hear this. He's going to talk about it's more tolerable for Sodom than for Capernaum. Now, remember Sodom's grossness. Their gross wickedness was homosexuality. And listen, it was not as bad in the eyes of God as pride. As pride. God hates pride. Remember, Satan's rebellion brought pride into the world. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 talks about six things God hates, seventh an abomination to him, and the first one out of the chute is a haughty eye, a prideful look, depending on what version you have of the Bible. It's pride. God hates pride. And in Esther, Haman, the evil Haman, wants to have Mordecai, good guy Mordecai, hung on the gallows. And folks, it says here, Pride goes before the fall. Haman ends up on the gallows instead of Mordecai. Different story for a different time. Now, closing. Now, you think that this went pretty fast, don't you? We have a closing of some thinkabouts. Some thinkabouts. And I want you to think about this. Jesus' warning, when he warns of judgment... It is a grace warning. It is a warning for people to turn and live. Not for people to run from him, but to come to him to live. And folks, there is a last, last chance. A last day when God says no more for that person. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, today is the day of salvation. God is the initiator in salvation, folks. When he comes to a heart... He opens spiritual blind eyes. He softens hard hearts. That is your moment. That isn't the time for you to say, oh, I'm not ready for this now. I will decide when I will believe. No, you won't. This is a work of God in the heart of man at the time that God wants to do it. Now, we can push him away and he'll come back and push him away and he'll come back. But there is a time when God says no more to a human. And he gives that person over to their sin. That is the saddest day of, for that person ever. Given over. Now think about this. We're talking about pride as being the biggest and greatest sin. Pride is the root of all sin. And a Capernaum was exalted to heaven. And I missed the slide, Maritza. Sorry, you're going to have to skip it. So just run with me. <laughs> So thinking about pride, the root of all, and Capernaum is exalted to heaven. Again, Capernaum was prideful, wanted their way. And this is just to emphasize, God hates pride. And I want to foray into this one. Think about this. 
We are living in a nation, I believe, that is declining. A declining dead nation will exalt pride. And that is what we are seeing today. Exit God, enter pride. Now, one of the things that we see to to typify what is happening to our nation is pride. It used to be pride day. Now it's pride month, where now we are extolling homosexuality. Now, folks, homosexuality is a sin. It is no sin greater than adultery, lust, jealousy, vanity, greed, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly, whatever you have, pick your poison. It's a sin. We're living in a culture because of their pride wants to say this is a normal life. And they keep telling you and they keep telling you and they keep telling you. And now they're telling your kid in kindergarten this and first grade, second grade, third grade, university, businesses, all throughout the culture. What has happened? Exit God enter the God of this age, extol pride. Pride. Now look at, hear this. I don't care what the government says about this issue. I don't care what media says about this issue. I don't care what the kindergarten teacher says about it to the university professor says about this or the corporate manager says about it. I care what God says about it. And what I have to do is... Deal with people that are homosexual as people that need the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ loves them. Christ died for them. Christ shed his blood for them. And the most merciful, gracious thing that you can do for someone that is streaking towards hell is tell them the truth. Throw them the lifeline of Jesus Christ and pray they grab on and say yes to Jesus and and no to the lies of the culture. I would suggest this to you. We are accused of saying hate speech because we are just saying what the Word of God says. Folks, that is the opposite of what it is. This is love speech. The epitome of hate speech is telling them that they're okay. The epitome of intolerance is bigotry is telling them they're okay. The epitome of love is telling them the truth about their condition. And that's with any sin Any person outside of Christ, not just this one, but this one permeates our culture that we're calling it Pride Month. Folks, that's a slap in the face of God. Now think about this. The Bible speaks of levels of punishment in hell. We talked about levels of rewards last time. It speaks of levels of punishment in hell. Verse 24, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Hebrews 10, 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose? For those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. How much worse, worse, seems like there's levels here, doesn't it? Worse punishment do you suppose? I want to read you a statement that someone read. Listen to what they said. He says, these statements of the degrees of punishment in hell are not meant to suggest that there shall be anything less than perfect misery for every soul in hell. For every person in hell, it will be a place of weeping. This is Jesus' quote, weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. I don't care what level you're in there. If there's levels, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that there are. There's levels of punishment and that sort of thing. But it's going to be awful no matter where you, what level you're in. This suffering will be forever, Revelation 14, 11. No one in hell will have it easy. That's why the message of the cross that we share with people is so essential. Eternities are at stake. Eternities are at stake. Now, these levels of whatever it's going to be, because the Bible's not all that clear on it, are according to what your works have been in this world. We're saved by grace through faith. But your level of disconnect from God will be based upon your works. Romans 2.6 suggests this. Revelation 20.12, at the great white throne judgment, the books are open, your life is examined, and everybody at the great white throne are lost, and then they are thrown into the lake of fire. It seems that this examination is revealing something, at least to me. So, uh, Another quote, judgment is not merely for determining who is in and who is out. 
It is for measuring guilt and assigning punishment that is measured exactly what every individual sinner deserves. God is just. God will get it all right. Perfect. And think about this. Now, when you're thinking about people that make volitional choices to sin against God, God has given people something that helps them to know that they know right and wrong. And you know what that is. It's a conscience. God has given you a conscience. All humans have a conscience. All humans have general revelation about God. God has declared the glory of the heavens. God has demonstrated by the creation that he exists. No one can deny that. They're aware of God. Now, conscience means this. It means with knowledge, with knowledge. And your conscience is pulling you, well, interesting, it's pulling you to do right, but I was going to say pulling you to the right. <laughs> right instead of the left. It's pulling you to the right, which is the right way, and the left would be the wrong way. So, and think about this. God has written his law on the hearts of every single human being. He has written his law on every heart. No culture in the world that you go to believes you can have someone else's wife or take someone else's hut or steal someone else's cow. No, it's written on their hearts that this is wrong. God has written it on every heart. Mankind knows right from wrong. No excuses. Romans 2.15 is clear. Who show the work of the law in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or excusing them. Do you know that when you come into this world, you come in relatively untainted. I mean, we have the original sin that is imputed to us from Adam. But we are basically have a conscience that pulls us towards God. That would be called a good conscience, God-oriented conscience. But as life goes on and you spurn God, your conscience can become defiled. That means smear with mud, filth, excrement. It can be seared. That means cauterized like with a hot iron, rendered insensitive. Do we see that today? Do you see that on the highway today? Consciences rendered insensitive as you see the rudeness of people that are just wanting to run you right off the road? We see insensitivity. Exit God and to enter evil. And then finally, the last conscience is an evil conscience given over to, to, to evil, an anti-God conscience. How we live our lives will determine if our conscience is functioning properly. Persistent re rebellion results in our, in our conscience being crippled, unable to function as God designed it. A person can dull their conscience, but they cannot dull what God has written on their hearts. The law of God is written on the hearts of man so they know right from wrong. They know that they know. And think about this. For every human that's ever lived, judgment is sure. We will all be judged thoroughly and completely. Your judgment, believer, occurred at the cross for sin. You will never be condemned. Your judgment will be for works post-salvation at the Bema Seat judgment we've talked about many, many times, and will receive rewards or loss of rewards depending upon what we have done for Christ. The lost person's judgment will be thorough and complete. Their destiny will be the lake of fire. Those who oppose God's grace and mercy now will ultimately reject him. Now, I want you to think about this. The devil owns every person that is born into this world. They have to be extracted from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. That is a miracle of God. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a person. If the Spirit of God comes to you and opens your heart and opens your mind, you have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus Christ. Now, think about this. The Holy Spirit to you and me. Listen to what he says through Paul. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. 
How we approach the culture is very important. We don't approach them with a sledgehammer. We approach them with reason and love and caring. Must not quarrel. He must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful of their lifestyle, not resentful. Those who oppose him, fault finders, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance. God will grant them repentance. God will grant them repentance. God has to do something in you to allow you to turn and live, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses, escape the trap of the devil, who has taken them captive to do his will. Now think about it. This is the word of God. What you have just heard is all true. When you go through your week this week, think about what you have just heard. Now I want to give you a picture here to close with. Truth. This word is the truth. Your job is to make sure, Bereans, that I have rightly divided the word of truth. If what I have said is not congruent with this, congruent with this, you exit. X. X. Cross it out. And if it's wrong, I hope you forget it. <laughs> forget it. But if it's right, and the Spirit of God has spoken to you, take it in. Soak it in. You can marinate on the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God. Truth counters the lie, folks. Truth counters doubt. And remember, thy word is truth. Take that into your week and meditate on it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for allowing us to study your word. Thank you for the life of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he came into this world to save us from our sins. Thank you that all who turn to him and just simply say, I believe you, Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son will be saved. We believe, we commit to put our trust in you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior. If someone in the, in the sound of my voice, this is resonating with them, I pray that today will be the day you say, yes, I believe, Jesus, you died on the sins, on the cross for my sins. I personally receive you as my Savior. I believe you did it for me. And if you do that, you'll immediately be born again, your spirit given life. Father, I pray right now you'll search the hearts of people here, the people on Facebook, the people that tune into the website or whatever we, however they listen to this, and that they will hear the word of the living God, turn and live if they're lost. If they're in the family, may they be all in, all in, all out for you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.